Father, we thank you for a beautiful day. We thank you for the change in the seasons that's coming upon us to see new life blossoming all around us. And we pray that uh, in the trials and difficulties of this life that um, we would ever know new life growing up within us as your word and spirit work together that though the outer person may be wasting away, uh, the inner person would be renewed day by day. May our studies uh, have that wholesome effect on us as we reflect on our Savior and the building of his church and its ongoing ministry and government. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, my goodness. I closed my eyes. There was hardly anybody here. and I, I've opened them, and we have a mob. <laughs> um, welcome to you all again. Uh, we're going to look at the... Um, different courts of the church, as they're called among Presbyterians. And uh, first, a word or two just of review to remind you to set the stage again. Um, We've been arguing that ecclesiastical jurisdiction is not a several, that is an individual, but a joint power to be exercised by elders in courts. These courts may have jurisdiction over one church or many churches, but in all, they have relations in such a way that they realize the idea of the unity of the whole church. Uh, And thus, for the orderly and efficient dispatch of church business, it's necessary that each sphere of action of each church court be defined distinctly defined in the Constitution. And we're going to be looking at some of those definitions this evening. We'll look at the the chapter on courts in general, uh, on the session, the Presbytery, and the General uh, Assembly. But we say, all of these courts are one in nature, constituted of the same elements, that is, elders, possessed inherently of the same kinds of rights and powers, that is, the rights and powers of elders given by Christ, differing only as the Constitution may provide. These courts are not separate and independent tribunals, but they have a mutual relation, and every act of jurisdiction is the act of the whole church performed by it through the appropriate organ. So the acts of our session are the acts of the whole of the PCA, but they're being acted Uh, brought about by the uh, appropriate form of the government of the PCA uh, uh, according to the Constitution, that is, the form of the session. So to our Presbytery uh, meeting this uh, Saturday, it acts on behalf of the whole PCA um, when it acts, uh, but with the uh, appropriate constitutional guidance. Um, Well, the um, the exercise of this government, recall, is exclusively ministerial and declarative. That that is that we're we're administrators of the word of God, declaring that word to God's people, appealing to their conscience, and it has no uh, uh, physical force in play at all. Uh, the great text for this is John eighteen thirty six. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Notice that Jesus is not criticizing the kingdoms of the world and their use of force. He grants that it's legitimate and that if his kingdom were of that kind, it would be legitimate for uh, his kingdom. servants to uh, be using force to protect him. But the point is, that's not the kind of kingdom uh, that Christ has brought together. And uh, thus, the the courts of Christ's church, this is in chapter 11, section 1, are altogether distinct from the civil magistracy, 
and have no jurisdiction in political or civil affairs. They have no power to inflict temporal pains and penalties, and their authority is in all respects moral and spiritual. Further, the church's government is not legislative. The scripture are the only rule of faith and practice for God's people, and therefore no church court ought to pretend to make laws to bind the conscience in virtue of their own authority. All right, chapter 10 in the book takes us to a a chapter on the uh, church courts in general and lays out some provisions that are applicable to all the the courts. Um, In the third section of 10, uh, there's a discussion of the moderator. Uh, This is a role that... um, We have in the session, in the presbytery, and the general assembly. Uh, The description of the duties are essentially the same. Uh, For prudential reasons, they note that the pastor is the moderator of the session. Presbyteries, most of them, uh, elect um, a a moderator for a a year or a particular session, and usually they alternate between ruling and teaching elders. The General Assembly chooses a moderator every year, a different moderator. And again, the Assembly alternates between ruling elders and teaching elders. The um, interesting thing is that uh, uh, in the past, the moderator's role was much uh, more extensive. Even when the Assembly was over, he'd be considered sort of a spokesman and leader of the church. Um, But the PCA kind of eliminated all that because they believed moderators had abused it in the old church. Um, Also, in the old church, uh, uh, usually the moderator that was elected would be known to represent some point of view in the church, and it would always be a test of who had their people at the assembly as to what kind of moderator was appointed. that was only true when they had delegated assemblies, that is, fully delegated assemblies. Uh, the PCA is the only Presbyterian church I know of in history where every minister, um, by right, uh, is a men- member of the General Assembly. Most churches have had uh, de- delegated, the ministers, only a certain number, were delegated by their presbyteries to participate. Um, the um, Also, every court has a clerk or clerks, but usually just one, and that uh, is a person who um, makes sure that the records are kept and uh, is the official uh, communicator with other parts of the church. Uh, In 10.5, we note that um, every session of every meeting of the session, Presbyterian General Assembly, shall be opened and closed with prayer. Now, I want to just remind us here, this is not a pious platitude. Ruling elders and teaching elders must together have a deep sense of God-dependency in their deliberations. And that sense surely is um, uh, fostered by and um, sustained by uh, having the assembly as a prayer uh, each meeting, looking to the Lord for his provision for that meeting. That's why our uh, session, for example, every year since we've been a church, has prepared a prayer guide for the assembly, for the whole congregation, so that you can know what to pray for and what kind of issues are coming up. That prayer guide uh, typically opens with words like these. Pray that the commissioners will have only an ear to the word of God as delivered in the scriptures, excuse me, the word of Christ as delivered in the scriptures as the rule for setting all substantial matters before, settling all substantial matters before the general assembly. And pray that they will exercise prudence and good sense in all matters merely circumstantial and that they will have the wisdom to so distinguish among themselves among the matters before the GA. Pray also that the commissioners will engage in debate with a sense of fair play, integrity, and charity, 
and that they will be moved by the Spirit of God to put aside all selfishness, pride, and party spirit in order to glorify Christ and his church and edify his people. Pray that the times of work and fellowship we'd find the bonds of unity among our elders strengthened. And pray that pastors who come in discouragement would be hardened and encouraged to be faithful in their labor. Um, Such prayers as these reflect the nature of the assembly and its work. And uh, to be mindful of that is absolutely essential uh, to faithfulness. We note also in this chapter uh, that the expenses of ministers and ruling elders in their attendance on the church courts are to be paid uh, by the bodies they respectively represent. Uh, This rule uh, has been in the Book of Church Order since the church was formed. I'm sad to report that there are many, many churches that don't pay attention to that rule. But I'm quite uh, gratified to say that from the beginning, uh, New Hope uh, was founded with the idea that we would send representatives to every meeting of every court that we're a part of and that the expenses would be cared for uh, by the church. And it's been, I think, a wonderful testimony. Now, um, a word or two about the way these courts function uh, and two subdivisions that are crucial to that functioning. Here we turn to chapter 15 on ecclesiastical commissions. And we learn there that there are two different bodies that serve our courts. There are committees and commissions. Uh, Sessions that are smaller don't typically have commissions, but most of our courts have committees that are organized to um, study and make recommendations with respect to the work that that particular court is doing. Um, the, uh, so, for example, um, Mission to North America, that's church planting in uh, the Presbytery or the general at the national level. Um, the Committee on Discipleship Ministries, that's Christian education. We have those at the Presbyterian General Assembly level. We have Mission to the World. That's a committee that um, studies and makes recommendations uh, for foreign missions. And we have uh, the Administrative Committee. um, And that uh, committee is usually responsible for things like the budget and organization of the meetings and so on. Uh, Committees are only appointed to examine, consider, and report to their parent body. But there's another entity called a commission, and a commission can be appointed to actually um, uh, um, deliberate and conclude whatever business is referred to it. It is virtually the presbytery acting Uh, but with a much smaller quorum, that is, number of people involved to make it effectual. And there are all kinds of things uh, that can be dealt with by commission. At the General Assembly level, uh, all judicial cases are handled by a commission. Uh, But things like um, the ordination of ministers, uh, and uh, if uh, there are parts of the church um, that are affected with difficulties, a commission can be sent in to try and settle that, the organization of new churches. Um, Right now, um, the presbytery can't have a regular judicial commission. And this is a a grievous oversight in uh, our book, and it's led to great difficulty. And in fact, this year, coming before the General Assembly, will be an overture to amend this section, 15.3, so that the Presbytery can have uh, a permanent commission uh, to deal with judicial business, um, which is much more efficient and uh, much more uh, geared to justice when um, a whole body has to vote on a case when they've never heard the matter. It makes it not a matter of justice, but it makes it a matter of politics. 
and uh, this is a defect in our current system. Well, um, the uh, first then of the courts is the session. Um, this is the congregation of the local elders. Uh, a session is made up of the pastor, associate pastor, if there be any, and the ruling elders of the church. Um, assistant pastors are, are not part of the session because they're not called by the congregation, they're called by the session. Um, and the chapter on the session uh, notes uh, concerning the uh, moderator that it's the uh, pastor by virtue of his office and if uh, he can't be there for some reason and there's a need to meet, one of the ruling elders can preside. Um, if a church is without a pastor for a time, typically uh, the presbytery appoints a moderator for the session so that the session can continue to function. And in 12.5, uh, we uh, hear what the session is called to do. Uh, they're to maintain the spiritual government of the church and to that end, they have powers uh, to do six sort of things that are identified. Um, they are to uh, oversee um, the discipleship of the people in their care. And if there are folk who need correction, they're to correct them. Uh, and they receive uh, uh, new members. They dismiss members to other churches. Um, that's the first they have the power to ordain, examine, ordain, and install ruling elders and deacons and to see to it that these folks devote themselves to their work. Also, the session approves and adopts the budget for the church. Now, some churches are in the habit of having the congregation approve the budget, but that, that's not really constitutional and not a particularly good idea. Um, but that's a hangover from the old church. Um, there to take special actions with respect to church property. Uh, the session has the power to call congregation meetings when necessary and is to organize all of the subdivisions of ministry in a particular congregation, whether it be Sunday schools or other kinds of classes or meetings, uh, and to uh, be sure to help promote obedience to the Great Commission at home and abroad. Uh, and then... Uh, finally, to exercise in accordance with the directory for worship, uh, authority over the time and place or the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Um, I'll just note here in passing that this section includes these words, to ensure that the word of God is preached only by such men as are sufficiently qualified, and then cites Book of Church Order 4.4, Fifty-three, two, and First uh, Timothy two, twelve, eleven, and twelve. Now, I raise this because it's a good example of uh, why we ought to be cautious in amending the Book of Church Order. Uh, some time ago, some decades now, uh, there was a controversy about whether um, uh, women would be allowed to preach in a worship service. And it was a pretty heated controversy in the church. And as you might expect from the PCA at that time, they very soundly settled the question, according to the word of God, uh, that that was not a calling that a woman could have. Um, but folk wanted to make sure that the Book of Church Order was clear. In my judgment, it was already clear. But what they put in was this section, to ensure that the Word of God is preached only by such men as are sufficiently qualified. The whole point of the sentence is the word men, not women. However, now, 20 years from it, uh, there are people who don't remember why that was put in there, and they read it that if the session were to think that their current minister was not qualified, they could prohibit him from preaching in the church. 
That's a complete travesty of our policy. As you'll see, the presbytery is entirely responsible for the minister. The presbytery establishes the relationship with the congregation. Only the presbytery can withdraw it. Only the presbytery can discipline the minister. But uh, there have been controversies, people arguing that the session had the right to suddenly decide the pastor wasn't qualified and refused to allow him to be in the pulpit on the basis of that sentence. It's demonstrable that that was never intended to say that. But if you forget uh, the legislative history, it could look like that's what it says. Even though it would, if it did say that, it would violate almost every part of our polity with respect to the minister and the presbytery. Well, and then finally, they're obliged to uh, uh, carry out the lawful injunctions of the higher courts and to appoint representatives. So our uh, elders uh, go to the presbytery, go to the general assembly. They participate. They bring back reports uh, and. Uh, particularly um, if there are things we need to do in relationship to that. Sessions are required to hold meetings quarterly. Uh, most sessions, I think, hold them monthly. And it's, those are called stated meetings. Uh, that Stated because it's in a rule they've adopted that they're going to meet on the third Wednesday of every month or some such thing as that. The moderator has the power to call a special meeting of the session, uh, but special meetings can only undertake the business for which they're called to treat. The stated meeting, any business can come up at all, but special meetings have to have a purpose and nothing other than the purpose of that meeting uh, can be taken up. That's true with respect to congregation meetings as well. If a special congregation meeting is called, it has to be for a special purpose and no other business can be taken up. A session is required to keep accurate, a re accurate, accurate record of its proceedings, we call them minutes, and they have to, once a year, submit those minutes to the presbytery. The presbytery has a committee, they read all of those minutes for the year, and they're to judge whether the Constitution, Constitution has been upheld and that actions have been wise and uh, God-honoring and so on. Um, and again, the point about prayer. Uh, the chapter closes insisting that the meetings of the session are to be opened and closed with prayer. Let me pause there for a minute and see if you have any question about anything that we've undertaken so far, in particular, anything about the session and its functioning uh, and uh, the way it functions at New Hope. Any concerns? Hey, Dave. Yes. Uh, Steve. Um, it does seem to me that <laughs> the um, rule that uh, presbyteries can't have standing judicial um, commissions, is that right? Yes. Um, should have been fixed by now. Do you have a... a, a view on why it's taken so long? Has it just come to a head lately because there are now so many more cases and they're more complex, or why? Uh, well, it's partly my fault. <laughs> I, I chaired the committee that um, brought into existence the Standing Judicial Commission for the General Assembly. And we spent three years on that in the early 90s, and it revolutionized uh, the whole system. Uh, and to this day, I think everybody agrees to the better, infinitely better. Um, the problem is to do that, it required amendments to the Book of Church order in a number of places, and it required amendments to the rules for general assembly operation in a number of places, and it required adjustments to the session, uh, the SJC manual. So it was a huge bit of legislation. And the larger the project that you're trying to undertake when you amend things, the less likely it is to succeed. It just gets too big and too complicated and people get fed up. So although we knew then 
the same thing needed to be done with respect uh, to the presbytery. Uh, we thought it would sink the whole deal if we tried to do it. But everybody on that committee was completely persuaded it needed to be done. Well, then we were all exhausted after <laughs> the, the great victory. It took two years to get it all in. Um, but uh, it, the, the, it finally passed. It had been said to be a committee that was designed to fail, that it was going to split and come in with the majority and minority report. We came in with a unanimous report and uh, an assembly that had almost dismissed the committee by a close margin in its first year adopted its report with about 12 negative votes. That was over a thousand people. I mean, it was a remarkable event, but uh, it's languished since then. There have been a number of attempts uh, to uh, uh, to get it done over the years since then. They've always been way too complicated. Um, the chairman of the Standing Judicial Commission, Fred Greco, and myself finally got together this year to try and come up with something simpler. And it's in part because the presbyteries, and it's not their fault, it's a terrible procedure, but they handle it so badly that we regularly have complaints coming up about it. And we, we have procedures that are so garbled, it's almost impossible to sort them out. So I'm very, our presbytery, in fact, on Saturday, I think is going to consider, and I hope pass, uh, the overture to make this change at the upcoming assembly. I think that's an excellent example of uh, incrementalism. Well done. Um, <laughs> Before the General Assembly adopted the amendments that led to the Standing Judicial Commission, what was the practice? Were judicial commissions created periodically, or was the whole General Assembly responsible for reviewing judicial cases? Uh, just very br briefly, Steve, the first system was a nightmare. Um, each General Assembly, a separate commission would be appointed to hear every case that was coming before the assembly. And they'd be off the floor of the assembly for that week hearing the case. I mean, a huge number of commissioners were not around. It meant they had to read everything that was to be read during that week and then hold a hearing and then come up with a judgment and report it out to the assembly and the assembly would vote yes or no. The assembly would only have the written report of that particular commission. They'd have had no evidence, no, they wouldn't have been a part of the hearing. And so, obviously, the thing became hugely political. No longer the careful weighing of evidence and judicious application of the evidence to the facts and coming up with a judgment. But now, people who just knew what was right and were gonna vote for what was right. So, we appointed a commission uh, and that was quite controversial. But the commission for the assembly was just like the one that currently is before the presbytery, that governs the presbytery. And so the commission would hear the case, write its report, bring it to the assembly, and the assembly, on the basis of that written report, written decision, the assembly, without debate or amendment had to vote up or down. Well, again, <laughs> it, was, it was not a judicial procedure at all. Um, it was political. And most of the time, most commissioners wouldn't even have a basis for voting one way or the other. So that's what was remedied uh, by the Standing Judicial Commission, but that's what plagues you know, and they did uh, say that you could ask questions. And so, I mean, it was, it was really brilliant rhetorical skill that people would get up and ask a question that was really an argument for or against the commission report <laughs> to, to have these, uh, um, to have debate masquerading as a form of a question. And depending on the moderator's skill, he'd either quash it down or 
things would get out of hand. It, it was really a nightmare. Well, I'm sorry to take you down that rabbit trail, but uh, thank you very much. Okay. Anyone else on that? Well, all right, on to the Presbytery. Churches in a particular region uh, are uh, um, given uh, care through the regional assembly of the elders. This is chapter 13 in the book. A presbytery consists of all of the teaching elders in its uh, geographical bounds and all the churches within the bounds. So, teaching elders and churches. Churches, then, uh, are allowed to send ruling elder representatives to the meeting of Presbyterian. Every congregation, regardless of its size, has two ruling elders that can participate. If a church grows to be bigger, they get an additional uh, ruling elder uh, for every uh, additional, um, uh, every 500 members over 350. Um, a, pre- a, a minister is required to hold his membership in the presbytery. So a minister is not, strictly speaking, a member of the congregation, if by member we mean under the jurisdiction of the session. He is a member of the presbytery. His court of original jurisdiction is in the presbytery. Um, and uh, it's the presbytery that has responsibility to see to it uh, that he does his uh, work and so on. We do have this peculiarity. Presbyteries have geographical bounds. Um, there are lawn, lines drawn on maps and so on. But... Um, we do have Korean-speaking churches, and for some time now, we have allowed there to be Korean-language presbyteries um, that uh, don't, don't fit in with the geographical bounds of the presbyteries of the church generally. Um, the uh, presbytery also has a quorum, just like a session meeting has a quorum, that is, uh, the the fewest number of people for it to meet and be able to actually take action. The Presbytery's quorum is three ruling elders and three teaching elders. Um, the, um, and there are a number of regulations about people coming into the Presbytery from other churches and so on. Uh, but the uh, principal thing here is that um, the powers of the Presbytery enumerated in 13.9, they have the power to receive and deal with appeals and complaints and references brought before it by the sessions in the church. Uh, that's a, We're going to talk about discipline, but an appeal is when there has been a trial, a person found guilty, they have a right to appeal that judgment to the court next hire. So if someone were tried at New Hope and they were found guilty, they would have a right to appeal that judgment to the presbytery. Um, a complaint is when um, you're subject to the jurisdiction of a court and you think it did something wrong. And uh, so, uh, for example, if if our session uh, said that uh, uh, um, the, the congregation should by Paul Wolf of Maserati, and one of the men on the session thought, oh no, it ought to be at Tesla, and he could complain that judgment to the Presbytery. <laughs> of course, um, none of that would ever happen, but the um, that's the idea of it, that the session makes some kind of an action that one of the session members thinks is mistaken, and they can take that for the review of Presbytery. And references. If there was a very difficult case before the session, the session was deeply divided over it, they could ask the presbytery to take up the case uh, in in their place. Uh, They have the right to receive and care for candidates for ministry, to examine and license them, 
uh, and to uh, ordain as well as to install ministers to remove them and uh, to uh, try them if they're found uh, to um, uh, have a strong presumption of guilt in something that they've done. Uh, the Presbytery once a year um, reviews all the minutes and the uh, sessions under their care and can correct them, ask them to redo things and so on. And in the meantime, the Presbytery itself is resp- responsible to keep minutes and to submit those to the General Assembly for review once a year. Um, the Presbytery has the right to uh, um, uh, f- find erroneous opinions that are arising uh, to need correction and to speak to that. Um, they have the right to unite and divide churches at the request of the members, uh, to receive new churches, to form new churches, um, to take special care of churches without pastors, uh, and to dissolve churches or dismiss churches to another denomination with their consent. In general, they are to devise measures for the enlargement of the church within its bounds and to do whatever is uh, reasonable with respect to the spiritual welfare uh, of the churches under their care. And finally, to propose to General Assembly overtures. Uh, that is, things that the Presbytery thinks ought to be done and to propose them to the Assembly if it has to do with the needs of the whole church. Um, the uh, Presbyteries are to meet at least twice a year uh, our Presbytery, Potomac Presbytery, meets, I think, five times a year. Um, or they have to meet whenever they're directed to do so by the General Assembly. Well, I think that's all that I'll say about the Presbytery. As I mentioned, the Presbytery has a similar um, committee structure to uh, the General Assembly, and um, we have very, very diligent Presbyters uh, in our Presbytery. The the committees are very active, and uh, we have a lot of f- folks serving. Um, we have a pretty uh, healthy presbytery uh, in the main, and that's a good thing. Some presbyteries struggle. Any questions about the presbytery? Hi, me again. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I may have misheard you. Forgive me if I did. Um, would you say that any one member of a session could appeal a decision of the session to the presbytery? And if that's the case, how does that work with the typical um, authority of the session, which is expressed jointly? Um, Is the individual that's appealing uh, expressing a joint authority on behalf of the session, or is he acting independently, uh, severally, if you will, in that regard? Um, the uh, just because the the terminology can get confusing, it's a complaint, and if he if he brings it to the presbytery, it's called uh, he's complaining. Uh, it'd probably be a better term for it, but in any case, I know about uh, <laughs> he uh, uh, the he isn't exercising any authority at all. Um, the. Uh, so it's not a several exercise of authority. Um, what he is doing is um, fulfilling a responsibility he has to both the session and the presbytery. The Remember, we're saying that all of the acts of all these courts are the act of the whole church. And if one session member believes the session has erred in some action, and seriously enough that he has a duty to try and see it corrected by the broader collection of elders. He, he has the right, in fact, the responsibility to bring that to their, to attend, uh, that to their attention. So it, it wouldn't be seen as an exercise of authority at all. Does that make sense? Um, I'm trying to shoehorn that into my understanding of juridical principles as a lawyer, and I'm having trouble. Um, as you know, there's nothing, there's no such thing in the courts, uh, the, uh, the civil courts as standing without a connection to the case. 
um, some right to bring an action. Um, who is the, the, the member of the session is in that case bringing a complaint and is regarded as, as acting on behalf of the whole church? In, in, in his office of elder, you, you remember, he, by virtue of being a, a session member, is, for that church, a member of the presbytery. So he has a dual responsibility. And most of the exercise of his responsibilities as a member of a court is found with respect to the local body. But as a member of presbytery... As a representative, he has a responsibility to that court. Now, with respect to the the good of the whole presbytery, and if one part of it has made a serious mistake, uh, it would be his responsibility to bring that up. Yeah, that that's help, that's helpful. I think I, I get that. Um, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And let me say, you know, it's a sad thing, but. Um, this is a good part of our church. Every elder on every session ought to be glad that the local session isn't a law unto itself, that the broader fellowship of elders can be brought in to look at a matter. And um, yet, in some sessions, uh, you're con- considered to be a betrayer if you were to bring something from the session to the presbytery. But that's a profound misunderstanding of the nature of the session and the nature of the presbytery. Um, We've never had a complaint against an action of our session in the 30-some years. Um, And we've had disagreements, but never a complaint. But if ever any one of our ruling elders thought they needed to file a complaint, they would have certainly been affirmed in doing so uh, by our elders, because we understand that this is um, a wholesome thing that that we can get the broader eldership to consider a matter. Does that... um, It's Bonnie. uh, Yes, Bonnie. So the person that would be responsible for bringing the complaint forward is a member of the session, and they would be representing the members of that particular church? If, uh, if, a, if a member of the church had a complaint and they were concerned about something, they go to their session. And then their session is the one who has to determine what is done with that? Uh, there, there are too many things going on in your mind at one time. But. <laughs> too many questions. Well, I was uh, thinking as it, an individual member. Yeah. Let's start with the session member. The session decides, I don't know, what what are they going to decide? To to end the Sunday evening service. And there are some ruling elders that believe that that's a God-appointed thing, not just a prudential service. And so it would be quite easy to imagine that uh, an elder would think, no, this is a serious mistake, and he's would have a right to take that question to Presbytery should the evening service be canceled. And what I've been saying so far is that elders ought to affirm that right and be glad for it. It's a wholesome element of our government. And there's never a time where we shouldn't be ready to hear from the broader body of elders on a question. Um a church member doesn't have a right to complain against the session um, because uh, you have to be under the jurisdiction of the court to complain. But a church member could, if they thought there was something wrong, they have actually three outlets. Uh, If they thought there was something wrong, they could go to one of the elders and say, look, would you bring this matter up? And if it's not satisfactory, that elder could take it as a complaint. Uh, A church member could go to another uh, minister in the presbytery and say, I think there's something going on here, and uh, I think it needs to be looked into. And that minister 
could then bring it before the presbytery and they would probably have a committee appointed to look into it. Uh, they'd probably, you know, just make some phone calls and talk about, see if there's anything going on to really. Or we do have another provision in chapter 40 of the Rules of Discipline that if a court with jurisdiction over another in by any means finds some out about some alleged grossly unconstitutional behavior, uh, they can cite that lower court to appear before them and explain it. So a congregation member could write to the presbytery and say, I think this is a very serious matter, that uh, our session is failing on some point, it wouldn't be a complaint. They don't get, uh, you know, a right to have standing. But the presbytery, if they find it plausible, could itself investigate. So there'd be at least three ways that a congregation member could have access to the courts. Okay, that you answered it. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Um. Anything else? All right, let's press on to the General Assembly. Um, the, um, there are, uh, I'm going to try and compress this a little bit here. Um, there are three principal things that, that the General Assembly is involved in. The General Assembly is a manifestation of the unity of the whole church. And so it represents the, the consolidated efforts of the whole church with respect to uh, the ministries of the whole church. And so the assembly has an important role to play uh, in foreign missions, uh, a less important role, but still a role in uh, national missions or church planting local in the, in our country uh, a role in uh, christian education um, there several agencies that are also under the assembly the college covenant college covenant seminary uh, there's a camp that's run uh, by the assembly um, the retirement program for ministers is run by the assembly and there's something called the Presbyterian Found, uh, PCA Foundation, which deals with uh, uh, charitable giving uh, uh, through uh, foundations. Um, I think I've covered them all. But um, three principal tasks. One, the assembly, through its committees, are pursuing the things that I've just described. The assembly only meets once a year, but at that meeting, that's a time in particular where the assembly oversees the work of its own committees. The committees have to, for every assembly, there are what are called committees of commissioners. They're temporary committees appointed in relationship to every one of those works that I've talk about, talked about. And at the assembly, the minutes of those committees are reviewed by these committees of commissioners and they can make recommendations to the assembly as to how they might be corrected or if there's something that needs to be further done or some such thing as that. So that's one of the works of the assembly. Uh, when it meets, it oversees and reviews the work of all its committees through these temporary committees that are appointed uh, for that assembly. The second thing is presbyteries, as I've said, can ask the assembly to do business um, of some kind. Uh, often folk want to study some new and difficult issue, and so they can appoint study committees. Uh, there can be some controversy that needs uh, addressing, and so they could appoint a committee to deal with the controversy. Uh, the committee that I chaired was appointed to study and make recommendations about changing the Constitution. And so that's also um, uh, something. And the, the way that gets done is through an overture. So the overture I just mentioned that will be coming to Potomac Presbytery 
to send to this coming assembly, uh, if that goes up, the overture will be petitioning the assembly to begin the process for amending Book of Church Order 15.3. Um, so that's the, the, the second, uh, dealing with overtures. The third is the review of the records of all of the presbyteries. It's an enormous task. Every year, there's a committee for review of presbytery records. It's a huge report. And if there, anything unconstitutional is going on or anything erroneous arising, those committees can recommend to the assembly that the assembly uh, um, direct the uh, presbytery to give an answer for what uh, they've seen. And so this is an, a critically important time for the oversight of the whole church and all of its parts together um, in the meeting of the assembly. That's kind of the whole of it in a nutshell. Um, the, uh, I mentioned we are strange in the fact that every minister in the church has a right to be a member of the assembly. Uh, that, <laughs> not everybody takes them up on it, but that's why we have such huge assemblies. Um, uh, the, the assembly in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I think, maybe it's about 300 people. We could have 1,500 people easily. Um, this is probably not a wholesome way to do things. Um, but it grew up out of uh, the battle with liberalism in the old church. Um, politically, the Presbyteries... Uh, people would get in positions of power and they would just see to it that conservatives were never elected to a general assembly. And they, they thought the best way to deal with that was just say all the ministers get to come. Ruling elders are delegated to the assembly. Uh, again, it's two per church and then the larger the church is, the larger their delegation can uh, be. Um, and the... Uh, um, there are certain principles articulated about the assembly um, and one of them are, is number seven in chapter 14, one. Uh, the assembly's committees are to serve and not to direct any church judicatories. They are not to establish policy but rather execute policy established by the general assembly. Now, that's the direct fruit of the battle with liberalism. Um, sometimes people who are interested in ecclesiastical uh, organization are more interested in power politics than they are in the gospel. And the people who are willing to put more time into this had a tendency, in fact, not to have as much interest in the gospel and it really was the case that um, uh, conservatives in the church could be kept from participating in the assembly, and that's why the assemblies began to go off the rails. Um, so there's a rule that reflects that, and uh, the um, and, and I think that so far in, in these forty nine years, uh, the PCA has done a pretty good job of uh, policing that and to make sure that the assembly really is representative of uh, the church. Uh, there's also some temporary, uh, some uh, permanent committees that aren't uh, part of the program. There's a theological examining committee. Uh, any um, people who are gonna actually work for the assembly have to be examined and uh, approved by that theological examining committee. There's a nominating committee that's responsible for uh, pulling together nominations for all the different committees and offices on committees. Um, and uh, the, uh, the assembly has stated meetings, as I say, annually. Uh, there could also be a special meeting of an assembly, but I've never heard of one happening. It would be quite a task to pull it off. Um, but... Uh, I think that's all that I'm going to say about it, except that um, 
in 14.7 on the chap, uh, in that chapter, we read this. Actions of the General Assembly pursuant to the provisions of Book of Church Order 14.6. That's an outline of all the kind of things that the Assembly has the power to do, such as deliverances, resolutions, overtures, and judicial decisions are to be given due and serious consideration by the Church and its lower courts when deliberating matters related to such action. Judicial commissions shall be bind, judicial decisions shall be binding and conclusive upon the parties who are directly involved in the matter being adjudicated and may be appealed to in subsequent similar cases as to any principle which may have been decided. But, now I've stopped reading, that's the provision. You see that in the PCA, unlike our federal courts, um, the, uh, the highest court's decision doesn't have a binding precedential value to the lower courts. It's only binding on the parties. It can be persuasively be appealed to by a lower court or a litigant from a lower court. But no one has the right to say at a presbytery level, well, the assembly decided X in case Y, and therefore we must decide X in, in, in a similar case. Um, and that also is to make sure that um, judicial decisions don't change our Constitution. And that, uh, well, I don't think I'll say anything more than that, unless you're really interested in that subject. <laughs> uh, and I'm run, I've run out of time here. But that's um, um, the session, the Presbytery, the General Assembly, some of the principles that are involved in their operation. Um, I've been involved in uh, the General Assembly at a host of different levels ever since uh, coming into the PCA, first as a ruling elder and then as a, a teaching elder. And it is, uh, in, in many ways, wonderfully gratifying work. Um, the, n next time we're going to talk a little about how the church court's n nuts and bolts work. But it's, to my mind, an amazing thing to see men from different parts of the country with different backgrounds... Uh, we're all committed to the same thing in our constitution and our doctrinal standards, but there are differences among us. And it's remarkable to me to see men come together and carefully and in a disciplined and thoughtful, thoughtful way work out an issue, come to a consensus, and provide something for the good of the church. It's a striking example of God being at work uh, to see folks come in from, with one point of view, engage each other faithfully with the scriptures, and to find perhaps another point of view. I've often said that, uh, and this is hard to say when I've been the author of some proposals, but I've often said that uh, I can't remember too many times where uh, a proposal didn't come out of a committee better than it was when it came in. And I think that's a wonderful testimony to our Lord's wisdom in the idea of a deliberative body of elders um, seeking his mind and will for the church and the Lord blessing by the Spirit. Questions, reflections, um, comments, and miscellaneous remarks. Well, all right. Um, our time has passed. Uh, so we're going to get to the idea of debate and consensus, majority rule and minority rights and rules of order uh, next time, and then press on to the question of discipline. And we'll be here done um, on this section of our study. Um, but thank you all for hanging in there and uh showing up tonight as always if there are any questions that occur to you after 
uh, class or in the week intervening, don't hesitate to let me know or bring them up uh, when we start. Um, well, I'll close this with prayer. Our Father, we uh, thank you for the wisdom uh, expressed so wonderfully in your word. Principles established that um, to this day in a very different kind of world uh, with um, high technology and extraordinary levels of education and achievement and wealth, and yet the fundamental forms still serving well to the glory of Christ and for the good of his people. And we uh, thank you for the privilege of being a part of this. And we do pray that you would be with Potomac Presbytery as it meets um, this coming Saturday. We pray that you would especially be with the assembly as it meets in June. Um, We pray for the host committee and especially the administrative committee that bears the burden of all the logistics and and uh, I know that they're having a terrible time because of hotels shutting down whole wings that they had promised us uh, because they, they can't staff them. And uh, so I pray that you just give our brothers and sisters who are working on these things peace and uh, that we would be able to uh, hold the assembly as we aspire to. And we pray all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.